Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In this lesson, we study Christ's messages to the final two churches. 28 miles southeast of Sardis was the city of Philadelphia with its group of faithful believers. The city was established in 150 BC by King Atlas II of Pergamum. He named the city Philadelphia, meaning brotherly love, because Atlas was renowned for the love he had for his brother. During the course of its history, Philadelphia was renamed on two different occasions by the Romans who ruled after the Greeks, and though neither of those Roman names stuck, the people certainly understood the significance of receiving a new name when a new authority came to rule over them. This city was small, prosperous, and it was a commercial centre with a strong local synagogue. And as we saw in Smyrna, it was the Jews of Philadelphia who were leading the persecution against the Christians, declaring that they had no place in God's kingdom. But Jesus had a different message for them in chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Out of the seven churches, this faithful church of Philadelphia was only the second to receive no rebuke from the Lord. Jesus begins by declaring that he is holy and true. The Old Testament clearly stated that holiness belonged to God and God alone. And so when Christ states that he is holy, he is revealing his deity. He's declaring that he is God. Jesus also announces that he's true. The Greek word he uses means real. Jesus does not merely represent truth. He is truth. In him, all knowledge and wisdom are present. He holds all things together. And the reality that we all seek can only be found in Jesus. Christ also identifies himself as the one who holds the key of David. In other words, he is the Messiah, the promised son of David. A key in scripture is symbolic of authority. He who holds the key of David has the power and the authority to admit people into the eternal kingdom God had promised. When he opens the door, no one else can shut it. And the first word that this all-powerful authority speaks is a word of reassurance to his people. He has seen their actions and knows their hearts. Though they had little strength, they had been obedient to his word. They'd not denied Christ and all that he stood for. We usually commend people for being strong, don't we? Yet here, Christ makes much of the fact that they had little strength of their own. The truth is, Christ's strength is made perfect in our weakness. For according to John 15 verse 5, without Jesus, we can do nothing. When we realize how much we need him, we find a door opened for us into the realm of God. God loves to use those who are weak in the world's eyes 
eyes because then the glory for whatever is accomplished really does go to him. Remember the Jews in that city were so sure of their favoured position, declaring that those who trusted Christ really didn't belong to God at all. But Jesus had news for them in Revelation 3, 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Jewish people certainly have a great heritage, but that's no guarantee of a relationship with God. Here in Philadelphia, they proved by their actions that their hearts were far from him, and that in fact it was Satan whom they served. For the second time, Jesus uses the phrase a synagogue of Satan to describe a Jewish group. And you may remember the last time he used that term was when talking about the Jewish community in Smyrna. I realize Christ's words here may seem harsh and even shocking, but he is saying that belonging to God isn't a matter of nationality or heritage, of history or of race. No, we become God's people by believing in Jesus as our Savior, which will lead to a life of true holiness and relationship with him. To trust anyone or anything other than Christ for salvation is to believe a lie, and the scripture is clear as to who the father of all lies is. It is our adversary, Satan. And whether the Jews in Philadelphia or Smyrna really understood the seriousness of their actions or not, their false accusations, their lies against followers of Christ, proved that they spoke their father Satan's native language. Jesus then assures his people that it won't always be like it is now. A time will come when their persecutors will bow and acknowledge the truth of God's great love for them. And he makes another promise in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. Jesus promises that those who keep his commands and endure to the end will be spared the hour of trial or tribulation that is going to come upon the whole world. Remember, we previously saw that those who live on the earth or the people of the earth was a figure of speech John repeatedly used to describe those who did not belong to Jesus. Apparently, the time of trial to come will be to test those who have rejected Christ, while those who've trusted in him will be spared. Some think that this is a promise to all faithful believers that if they are still alive, as the time of testing approaches, they will be raptured, or in other words, caught up to be with God, and so will be spared the last seven years of tribulation before Christ returns to the earth. What a wonderful thought that is. However, the Greek words here are inconclusive, for the way it's phrased can mean that Christ will keep them from experiencing tribulation or that he will keep them through the time of trial. Though there's uncertainty about the exact meaning of this phrase in Scripture, whether we're kept from or kept through the time of tribulation, it seems to be a win-win situation to me either way. 
Christ himself will guard us and will bring us to himself no matter what. Verse 10 may have some ambiguities, but verse 11 does not. Jesus said, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. There is a certainty. Jesus is coming again. And there is something we can do with that certainty. We can hold on to what we have in him lest we lose our reward. Then Christ gives a glimpse of what lies ahead for those who do hold firm until the end. Verse 12, To him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The Lord's use of this picture is an interesting one. Obviously, Jesus wasn't promising to turn these believers into literal pillars, but I think he uses this image to emphasize that he will be the one to establish them in God's presence in heaven. He will do so by his strength and his power alone, and once there, they would always be secure, irrespective of what others thought of them. What a great visual this was for those in Philadelphia who knew what it was to be shaken and to repeatedly flee for safety outside of their city walls. Their entry into God the Father's presence did not depend on their own strength, nor did their remaining there. Christ himself would establish them and they would not be shaken. There was another comfort extended in verse 12 to those believers of Philadelphia who had experienced so many name changes in the past. Christ declared that he would mark them not only as belonging to the Father and to heaven, the new Jerusalem itself, but Christ also promised to put his name upon them. Think back to when you started school or when you went to a camp. One of the first things you were told to do was to mark your belongings with your name. You would identify what was yours so that no one else could claim it. Jesus is declaring that each one of these persecuted, anxious Philadelphian believers is known and valued. They are marked with his name, for they belong to him. When we trust Christ, we too are marked with his seal, the seal of the Holy Spirit. And if we belong to Jesus, then we belong to the Father and to heaven itself. The last of the seven churches was Laodicea, some hundred miles east of Ephesus, where the journey had begun. Laodicea was the only church of which Jesus had nothing good to say. Laodicea had also suffered many earthquakes, but while other cities in the region had accepted help rebuilding their cities, the people of Laodicea were convinced that they could take care of themselves. They were a wealthy group of people who felt that they had much to be proud of. They were famous for their banking, their medical school, and their textile industry, all of which will factor into what Jesus says to them. For all its wealth, the city had its challenges, the biggest of which was its total lack of water. All their water was brought in by aqueducts from two different remote sources. 
Hot water was carried in from mineral springs in Herapolis, six miles away. However, by the time it arrived in Laodicea, the water was no longer therapeutic. Over the course of its journey, it lost temperature and arrived lukewarm. Icy spring water was fed into Laodicea from Denizli, which was also six miles away in a different direction. And once again, after traveling such a great distance, it too arrived lukewarm and was no longer refreshing. It was a common sight to see weary travelers arrive in the town square of Laodicea and take a large gulp of water only to spit it out in disgust because it wasn't what they were hoping for. This dependence on outside water supplies was not only inconvenient for the people, it left their city vulnerable to attack. In order to survive, the people of that city had become skilled negotiators to ensure that their lives didn't change. They were determined that everything should continue just as it always had, and they were continually acting with their own self-interest at heart. The name Laodicea actually meant rule of the people and they were quite used to exercising their own authority and doing things their way. And perhaps because of that, Christ reveals himself as the eternal ruler of all. He instructs John in verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus first reveals himself to them as the Amen, using a reference to God that comes from Isaiah 65, 16. Jesus to be the Amen. He is God Most High, and because the word Amen can also mean truth, Jesus not only speaks the truth, he is truth. He is the faithful and true witness. When the court of heaven is seated, he can be counted on to speak that which is true. Christ also introduces himself to them as the ruler of God's creation, which can also be translated as the beginning of the creation of God. Jesus was not only the origin of creator, he rules over it all even now. The people of Laodicea, with all their self-centered pride, had fallen into the trap of complacency. They were used to doing whatever was convenient to them, and they'd forgotten that Christ was indeed God Most High and that he was their ruler. Being focused on their own self-interest, they lacked fervor in following Jesus, and like the lukewarm water of their city, they'd lost their effectiveness. They were neither hot nor cold in their dedication to the Lord and were incapable of ministering healing to the hurting or refreshment to the weary. Jesus warned that if they didn't change their half-hearted attitude, he would spit them out of his mouth, rather like the travelers they were used to seeing in their city square. 
The self-sufficient Laodiceans were focused on and proud of their accomplishments, their banking industry, textile industry, and their medical expertise. In fact, Laodicea was world-renowned for a particular eye ointment that was made there. And so Jesus quotes their prideful statements back to them in verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Notice the great difference between how they saw themselves and the truth of who they really were. Though they had vast wealth stored up in their banks, they were spiritually bankrupt. Though they were renowned for an eye solve that cured many, they were spiritually blind themselves. And though they were famous for their rich textiles, they were really naked and their shame was exposed. This was a church in self-denial. They didn't know who they really were or what they really needed. So what does Christ tell them the remedy is in verse 18? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Jesus urged them to stop trusting in their own resources. He urged them to turn to him for their needs. And though no actual money would be involved, there would be a cost. They would need to let go of their pride and accept that only he could provide what they so desperately needed. He urged them to seek his gold refined in fire because the riches he offers lasts for eternity. They were to seek his white robes of righteousness to cover their own filthy rags and they had to ask for his medicine, his healing to restore their spiritual sight. And then remarkably, he reassures them of his love, saying that if he didn't love them, he wouldn't correct them in this way. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Christ then calls them to three things. They are to be earnest. He wants them to be more sincere and serious about serving him. The Greek word he uses there, though, when calling them to be earnest, can more accurately be interpreted that he wanted them to boil over in their devotion to God, which, if you think of it, is the perfect thing to tell people who were previously lukewarm. Jesus also calls them to repent, and we have seen this repentance is about more than just being sorry for past actions. It involves our being willing to change direction too. Jesus wants them to open the door to him. He tells them, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. And he promises that when they open the door to him, he will come in and eat with them. 
This scripture is so often quoted as an invitation to non-Christians to open the door of their hearts to Christ for him to indwell them. And that is certainly true. But notice here, Christ is knocking on the door of his church, asking that we allow him to come in and take his rightful place as Lord in all of our midst. This should shock us and push us to self-reflection. The fact that Jesus could be outside of our church asking to be let in is distressing to me, and it should be a concern for all of us. Have we become so proud and self-reliant that we've effectively shut him out of our lives? If the answer to that is yes, maybe, then we need to get some fire in our bones. We need to repent and open the door to him, praying for the Holy Spirit's passion and enthusiasm for the things of God to fill us. He closes his message to the Laodicean church in verse 21 with a promise and a now familiar encouragement for once again it is the personal response of the individual that Christ requires. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Those who belong to him must be willing to do away with self-rule. Jesus must be Lord of our lives in everything. Interestingly, those who fully yield themselves to Christ will have far more authority in the end because Jesus promises that we shall ascend to a place of authority with him just as he did with his father. Those in Laodicea were so captivated with their own strength and self-sufficiency that it put them at risk of losing the true authority and power that awaits all who willingly submit themselves to the rule of Christ. I'm so grateful that Jesus loves us enough to reprimand us rather than to just let us go. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we've seen Christ's message to seven churches that existed at that time of John's writing, but and it's spoken about what they were like. In fact, many of our Bibles carry descriptions of the seven churches in their headers or in the explanatory notes. For instance, the church at Ephesus is described as the loveless church. The group at Smyrna was the persecuted church, while those in Pergamum were revealed to be the compromising church. The corrupt church of Thyatira was next, followed by Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea, which were known as the Dead Church, the Faithful Church and the Lukewarm Church, respectively. If you think about it, these different characteristics can describe types of churches that can exist even today. For example, if we look at the churches in our own town or city, we would likely see many that fit into these same categories. We might see some who've compromised their teaching and some who've remained faithful. We may even identify a few that are lukewarm or dead. 
irrespective of the way that you view these seven churches and what they teach us, it is plain that within each of them, there were those who walked with Christ as well as those who did not. But Jesus was always in their midst, appealing to them to act in a way that brought him glory. As we move on into chapter 4 briefly, John declares, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. John is about to see a vision detailing the events of the time known as the tribulation. These are the last seven troublesome years before Christ returns to the earth. But before John witnesses any of what is to come, he sees a door standing open in heaven. Jesus calls him into heaven and it is from there that Christ will show him all that will play out on the earth. The symbolism here is really important and we can't miss the fact that there is only one door through which John is able to enter into God's heavenly courts. So too, there is but one way into God's presence. For not only did Jesus say in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He also announced in John ten nine, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. The door to God's presence stands open to John because he had trusted in Christ's death and his debt had been paid. Indeed, there is an open door for all who place themselves into Christ's care. As John is caught up into heaven, many see this as being symbolic of the much-anticipated rapture of the church just prior to the time of tribulation. At the time of the rapture, it is believed Christ's followers who are still alive on the earth will be spared the wrath that is to come as Christ catches them up to be with him in heaven. Don't worry if this is confusing at the moment, for we'll cover the rapture of the church in more detail later on. At Christ's call, John proclaims, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. John tries to describe the indescribable, but his words fall short, for it is impossible to communicate the beauty and majesty of all that he saw. Though the disciple sees God seated upon the throne, notice he makes no attempt to describe him in any human form. Rather, John describes his vision as lights flashing from precious stones. He speaks of jasper, carnelian, and emerald, the most precious stones in his day, which he uses to try to communicate God's radiance. John mentions a rainbow, which is always symbolic of God's faithfulness to keep his promises. 
Notice this rainbow fully encircles the throne of God. When we see a rainbow from earth, we only see half of it, but not so in heaven. There we'll see it in its entirety for what we now know in part here will be made fully known to us once we stand in God's presence. Around the throne there are other thrones belonging to those whom John calls the 24 elders dressed in white with crowns of gold on their heads. Scholars suggest that these elders represent the faithful people of God. Their white robes are the robes that are promised to the faithful in Revelation chapter 3 verse 4. In the same way, crowns are guaranteed to the overcomers in Revelation 2.10. Jesus also promised thrones to those who abandoned everything to follow him in Matthew 19. So the description of these elders ties in with the promises that were made to the faithful. The question will be then, why are there 24? We remember that this is a vision of what shall be in the future. Perhaps 12 represent the 12 tribes of Israel, while the other 12 might represent the 12 apostles. We don't know exactly who these elders are, but they wear white as a symbol of purity, and they're crowned with gold crowns of the kind given to victorious athletes. The throne room of heaven was filled with sounds too. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Lightning and thunder will appear at key moments throughout Revelation, symbolizing God's judgment and his salvation. The Holy Spirit, known as the sevenfold Spirit of God, is there. And before the throne is what looked to John like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Clearly, John is struggling to communicate the majesty of all that he saw in God's throne room. It was a place of brilliant light incredible beauty and great power, and that's where we'll have to leave John for this lesson. I hope you'll join me next time as we learn more about our majestic King seated upon the throne of heaven. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.